Well, welcome back to evening worship. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 134, verses 1 through 3, which says, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 246. 246. may be seated. If you'll turn with me in your hymnal to number 634, uh, while we are receiving tithes and offerings, uh, we will also sing this hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. We won't play through the first stanza, just the introduction, and then we'll begin in with number 634 as we receive the offering.
And we will now enter into a time of prayer. I neglected to ask anyone to lead us off tonight. Do I have a volunteer? Sam got his hand up first. Um, Anyone is welcome to follow after Sam and pray. I will close our time of prayer when there are no further prayers. Let's pray. Father, I am in these prayers and want to thank you tonight. Thank you for the the great Lord's Day morning we had today. Thank you that you've built the rhythm of our lives on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we get to start each week anew by remembering that not only did Christ die for us, but that Christ rose for us. That he accomplished everything that was necessary for our salvation and our eternal life with you and proved it by conquering death, hell, and the grave. Help us to start this week in the sure and certain knowledge that we don't have to work to earn your approval, uh, that our approval has been purchased by Christ, that all our obedience is, is a matter of thanksgiving and gratitude to you for what you've already done for us. It's not about what we can do for you, but what about what you have done for us. That's what empowers us to live. So I pray that you would do that, that you would do just that. You'd empower us to live in this coming week. We don't know what we're going to face. We don't know what trials we might face. 
We don't know what temptations we might face, but you do. And so would you empower us as we commune with you to face whatever comes our way and to live lives filled with joy and gratitude, not a flippant happiness, but a true, deep, profound joy that comes from having a relationship with Jesus Christ, that comes from having, as the apostle calls it, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Would you, by your Spirit, draw near to us, not only but this night, and would your Spirit now, we ask, come and instruct us. He inspired this word from the scripture that was written, and so we pray now that he would fan it into flame, that he would make it hot, that he would make it come alive, that it would make it come afresh to us, um, that we might leave this place saying we have been taught by God from your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Bless us this night for Christ's sake and forgive us all our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Our scripture reading tonight is in Matthew chapter 26. So we're flipping back a chapter from where we were this morning. And we're going to read Matthew's account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before his trial and then crucifixion. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Hear God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. And watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And this ends this reading of God's holy word. Received a few comments this morning on my uh, title for the sermon tonight. So the question, why did I entitle this message, The Seminary of Gethsemane? Well, it goes back to something I learned years ago. Martin Luther has a 
famous line, I say famous, in the Reformed world it's famous. Martin Luther wrote, I want you to know how to study theology in the right way. I have practiced this method myself. The method of which I am speaking is the one which the Holy King David teaches in Psalm 119. Here you will find three rules. They are frequently proposed throughout the psalm and run thus. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Meaning, it sounds fancier in the Latin, but it means prayer, meditation, and temptation. You become a theologian, Luther says, through prayer, meditation, and facing temptation. Facing trials. Facing struggles. So we talked this morning about learning to pray from the book of Psalms. Tonight I want to talk more about prayer. But specifically, I want to look at the prin- a principle we can learn about prayer through Jesus here in Gethsemane. Jesus, the great theologian. Because he's doing all these things, all three things that Luther mentioned. He's meditating, he's praying, and he's facing his greatest trial all at the same time. So this is the school of prayer, where we get to see the master laying out his heart before the Father. That's why I titled the message, The Seminary of Gethsemane was because Jesus is taking his disciples and he's taking us to prayer school here. So I want you to see two points from the passage. What prayer takes and what prayer makes. Number one, what prayer takes. So in the text, Jesus commands the disciples twice to watch and pray. He also questions Peter in verse 40. He says, could you not watch with me and pray for one hour? The Greek word translated watch, it, it means to watch, but it's, it's a little more intense than that. It means to pay attention, pay close attention. He wanted the disciples to watch and see what was going on. He wanted them to see what Jesus was doing and to enter into prayer with Christ because of the temptations that they were all about to face. So pay attention and pray. Have you ever thought about the phrase, pay attention? Why do we say that? Pay attention. Well, it's because attention is valuable, and attention costs us something. Right? What does attention cost you? Well, if I'm going to focus in and pay attention to one thing, that means the payment I have to make is not to pay attention to all the other potential things I could be paying attention to. It means I have to let something slide and not pay so much attention to them because I'm going to focus on this particular thing. And see, this, it was a problem for the disciples. Just one hour Let's hone in in our hour of greatest need and pray. If it was a problem for the disciples, I would submit it's a pretty bad problem for us too. Attention is, is not our strength in our modern culture. We have bells and whistles trying to get our attention literally now 24, 24-7. It's all the time. We have this thing we walk around with in our pockets that's beckoning to us all the time. Pay attention, pay attention. And it's getting harder And I feel it in myself. This is why I talk about it. I feel it in myself that that phone wants to suck me away from things that are so much more profound. Mark Fetterman, who is a a sociologist, wrote a little book called The Cultural Paradox of the Global Village. And this thing's over 10 years old now. And you have to say if something's over 10 years old and it's talking about technology, it's dated. It's dated, but it's powerful. And he says this, Everyone is vying for the most precious and valuable commodity to be sought, our attention. He says, our attention is our commodity. It's what all the advertisers, it's what everybody wants. He continues. 
Think about it. Every advertiser, every potential vendor and company desperately wants your attention and will go to great and sometimes outrageous lengths to obtain it. If attention is the most valuable commodity, our most valued asset, it may be said that the most valuable personal skill you can have now to be effective is ignorance. And he says literally, ignorance. Learning to ignore stuff. Learning to ignore stuff that doesn't matter and pay attention to what is valuable. The ability, he says, to selectively and appropriately ignore that which is irrelevant and merely distracting. So he says two profound things there. One, your most valuable commodity is your attention. Everybody wants it. Two, because of this, you have to develop the skill of ignoring things that need to be ignored. Your attention is finite, right? You can only stretch it so far, and it's going to break. And so the ability to pay attention. It's, I read somebody a while back who said that the ability to truly read, for instance, like why is reading so difficult for modern people? It's not because you can't read, right? We can all read. We're in a literate society. It's difficult to read because we don't like to pay attention for a sustained length of time to something. A book demands sustained attention. So this author said that he thinks the skill of being able to truly read a text is going to become so rare and so valuable in modern times that there's going to be like this special class of people called the readers because they're going to be the only they're going to be the ones we go to for all the answers, the ones who carefully and attentively read books. So it could be this, this idea of paying attention. I mean, it applies, we're talking about prayer tonight, it applies to everything. Uh, I could be in a situation where my child is in need of attention, but just because of my cell phone, I have something constantly tugging at me and pulling me away. I'll tell on myself a little bit in this. My kids have, uh, de- have developed a number of memes about me, as they call it. There's little stereotypical things, quirky things about my personality that they like to joke about, and one of them they entitled Lost at Walmart. Here's what Lost at Walmart means. Lost at Walmart started on a trip to Walmart where we're all there and both of my daughters realized I was walking around like I had no clue where I was going. I was just lost. And you know why? Because I, I was lost in here. Because I was thinking. I was worrying. I was anxious. And so I'm walking around like a zombie. Not paying attention to anything, really, except turning inward into my own, uh, into my own thoughts. And, and, and then not too long after that, after I'm informed that this Lost at Walmart meme exists, um, I went into a gas station that I go to all the time and went to pay at the counter, and I talked to the clerk all the time, and uh, I'm lost in my thoughts, and he says, are you okay? And I, I kind of looked up, and he goes, no, seriously, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I was, but I was lost in my thoughts. Even a complete stranger could tell it. You're here, but you're not here. And see, that's the temptation of our lives. We walk around all the time. We're here, but we're not here. Arthur Bors, I love his book, Focus, which kind of talks about living the Christian life in an age of technology. He's a retired Presbyterian minister. He said that we live in an age of systemic distraction. I like that phrase. Inside, outside, constant systemic distraction. Here's his quote. We live in an age of technologically induced and reinforced attention deficit disorder. Maggie Jackson bluntly writes, We are on the verge of losing our capacity as a society for deep, sustained focus. It is sobering to be reminded by a study that most psychological pathologies are characterized by disorders of attention 
and then to consider how our attention may be misdirected and malformed by technology. End quote. In an age of systemic distraction, an age where it's harder and harder to be present, in an age in which everyone wants your attention, I'm proposing to you, as Jesus said to the disciples on a night when they were going to be tempted, we need to more than ever be focused on prayer. Prayer needs to be a number, you know, top of the list priority because we're going to see one of the things God wants to do to us in prayer, how he wants to change us, is he wants us to improve our focus, to improve our attention. Walter Marshall, a Puritan writer, wrote the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. A lot of uh, Reformed theologians think it's the best book ever written on sanctification. In that book, this is how he describes prayer. Strive to bring your soul into order by prayer. Pause there. It's an ordering of the soul. Continue. However disordered by guilt, anguish, inordinate cares or fears you are, strive to bring your soul into order by this duty. A watch must often be wound up. You must wrestle in prayer against your unbelief, doubting, fears, cares, reluctancy of the flesh to that which is good. Against all evil, lusts and desires, coldness of affection, impatience, trouble of spirit, everything that is contrary to a holy life and the grace and holy desires to be acted uh, for yourselves or for others. Stir up yourselves to these duties in prayer. I like two things he says there. He describes prayer like a winding of the watch. Yeah, that's when the battery, yeah, well, there were no batteries, I guess, when you wound a watch. But the point being, things aren't working right. You're getting out of order. You're being pulled apart. You're distracted. He says you go to prayer to wind yourself back up, to set yourself back in order. Uh, it's when, the, when I'm lost in Walmart, prayer is supposed to call me back and say, be present where you are. It's the only place you can be. I really think the next generation coming up, it's almost in their minds like you can be multiple places at one time. You can't. You can only be right here, right now, and the only place God will ever deal with you or speak to you is in the present, right here, right now, over and over again. So I close this point. A little string of, of quotes from Arthur Bors. He says, A key human capacity, one that has always been understood as crucial to spiritual life, is the ability to pay attention, and it is being attenuated. William McNamara vividly describes contemplation, or you could say meditation, as long, leisurely, loving looks at the real. Simone Weil wrote, Prayer consists of attention. It is the orientation of all of the attention that we are capable of toward God. The quality of the attention counts for much in the quality of prayer. And then he quotes Douglas Steer, which this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard about prayer outside of Scripture. Prayer is paying attention to the deepest thing you know. It's going into the presence of God and saying, you are more important than all the other things. You are the deepest thing I know. So what is prayer? What are we doing in prayer? Well, first and foremost, we're paying attention to God. We're saying, God, I am here. I am in communion with you. You're paying attention. So that's what prayer takes. Here's number two, what prayer makes. So back to our text, starting in verse 37. It says, And taking with him... Jesus taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's amazing here to me, and I love this passage. It's an emotional passage. It makes me emotional, but it's so glorious and it's so beautiful. We see Jesus falling apart. He is uh, reminiscent of Samson when he gives in to Delilah. He says the same phrase, that his soul was sorrowful, even unto death. Uh, So this is him, the son of God, at his tipping point. At his breaking points. I'll reference Jonathan Edwards again later, but Jonathan Edwards has a glorious sermon on the Garden of Gethsemane where he says Jesus is already beginning to taste the pains of hell in Gethsemane. He's getting a foreshadow of the wrath of God. Edwards uses the imagery that it's as if God is taking Jesus and dangling him over the pit and saying, Are you sure you want to go? That's where we find Jesus here. And this is so different from the Jesus we see in the rest of Matthew's Gospel. Why? Because what do we see him do? He's the king. Matthew is the royal gospel. He's the king who's he's healing lepers and he's healing the blind. He's making the lame to walk. He's calming the sea in the midst of a raging storm. And here he is and it looks like the raging storm has entered into his soul. And uh, I listened to a sermon by Haddon Robinson a while ago talking about Jesus at Gethsemane. And he said this, Where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Now think about that. Where was it? It wasn't at the cross. It was in the garden. He continues, Not in Pilate's hall, not on his way to Golgotha. It was in the garden of Gethsemane. There he offered up, as Hebrews 5 says, prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Had I been there, Robinson continues, and witnessed that struggle, I would have worried about the future. I'd never thought about that. If the disciples are watching, what are they seeing? They're seeing Jesus falling apart, and they've got to be thinking, oh boy, if he's falling apart now, what's going to happen when it gets worse? Continuing, if he is so broken up when all he is facing is prayer, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet when the true test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage and his three friends fell apart and fell away, end quote. When the true trial comes, when the Roman soldiers show up to arrest him, when he stands before Pontius Pilate, when his clothes are stripped off of him, when a crown of thorns is placed upon his head and nails are placed into his hand, he's strong. But you look at the disciples who slept through the prayer. When they get to the trial, what do they do? They crumble. I take a principle from that. I apply it to my own life. Feel free to have it. It's better to fall apart in prayer than it is to fall apart when the trouble comes. God gives us prayer as a gift so that we can, fall, so to speak, fall apart ahead of time. So that we can prepare ourselves for the trial by laying all of our worries, all our anxieties, all of our concerns to him before the crucial moment comes. But this requires a great deal of honesty in your prayer life. And that's a challenge for many of us, and I know because it's a challenge for me. Um, I don't want to tell God how I'm feeling most of the time. 
I mean, there, there are parts of my soul that I feel like I can hide from God, and I feel much better with Him not poking His nose into my business in those ways. But you have to remember, like, A, if Jesus is willing to be so raw, emotional, emotional, and vulnerable with the Father... This is Jesus, the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased. And here he is laying out that, I don't want to do this. I know this was your plan from all eternity. But now that the rubber meets the road, if there's a way out, I'll take it. You, know, you think back of Isaac, when Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, the ram showed up in the thicket. You know, Jesus is thinking, is, is, is there a way out? It's, it's, it's him at his most fully human. He's always fully human, but we see him so very fully human here. And if Jesus can be that raw and that frank with the Father, he's showing us we can be too. You can't hide anything from him anyway. You're never going to tell him anything he doesn't already know. So you might as well open up. You might as well bear. If something hurts, you might as well tell him. If something offends you, you might as well tell him. He can take it. He's God. He's omnipotent. He can take a, I mean, read the book of Job. Read the Psalms. I mean, I was thinking today about as we were talking about praying the psalms, I was thinking about what are the darkest psalms? And there are a bunch of them. But I, I wrote down two that I wanted to share with you. Just show you. Jesus was emotionally honest with the Father in prayer. The psalmists were emotionally honest with the Father in prayer. Psalm 88 is a great example. It says, starting in verse 14, we're just going to read the end of it. Oh Lord, why do you cast, uh, cast my soul away? Should a believer talk like that? God, I feel like you've just cast my soul. You've just thrown me away. Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death for my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness I like the way the NIV translates that last line. It says, darkness is my closest friend. The psalmist is saying, God, darkness is a better friend to me than you are right now. And God, let that be a part of his word. One more. Psalm 39. The end of Psalm 39, starting in verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like my father's. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The NET, which is one of the more literal English translations you can find, translates that last phrase. The psalmist is saying to God, turn your angry gaze away from me so I can be happy before I die. That's raw. God, would you just for a moment look away? I don't need your gaze upon me. I don't need your anger upon me. Why does God allow prayer such as this into his word? Here's Derek Kidner's answer, the commentator. He says, The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. See, those desperate prayers, I call those Gethsemane prayers. Those are prayers when you go to a dark place with God. You go to a dark place, but you go there with God. See, what Psalm 39, what Psalm 88, what Gethsemane, what they all have in common is, these guys are venting. But they're not venting to everyone else. They're venting to God. That's why it's prayer. They're actually telling God what their concerns 
are. But we don't want to go there. We don't want to go to Gethsemane. It's a great story. Um, One of my pastor friends, during his internship, I came to hear him preach. This is 13, 14, 15 years ago. And uh, he had just read Jonathan Edwards' sermon on the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the, the theme of that sermon was the wrath of God will be felt primarily in the soul. We think of hell as a place of physical torment. Edwards argues that it's a place of, of spiritual torment as much as anything. And so in my friend, in his sermon, he drew from Edwards' sermon, The Agony of Christ. Uh, the cup that Jesus doesn't want to drink is the cup of the wrath of God. In Gethsemane, God is beginning to pour his wrath into the soul of Jesus. Jesus isn't primarily afraid of physical death. The horror that surrounds him is knowing that he's going to bear the weight of the wrath of God for all the sins of all his people for all of time. In his soul, he's starting to feel that weight, and he's sorrowful exceedingly to the point of death. Well, after my friend, that was a summary of my friend's sermon. The day after that sermon, his pastor calls him and said, Can I take you out to lunch? And so his pastor takes him out to lunch, and he says to my friend, uh, You can't keep preaching like that. It's too intense. It's too fiery. You're going to burn yourself out. And you're going to burn your hearers out. And I remembered that. This happened a couple years ago when I was, I was preaching on the Garden of Gethsemane. I remembered that story. And so I called my friend. And I said, do you remember when I came to hear you preach and you preached on Gethsemane? Do you remember that sermon? He said, yeah, I remember it. I said, do you remember your, your pastor took you out to lunch? He said, oh, yeah, I remember it. And I said, I know he told you you had to stop preaching like that. Why do you think he said that to you? And this is a quote. I I was taking notes during this phone conversation. He said, because Gethsemane made him uncomfortable. Why? Because you can't grow a country club church in Gethsemane. You can't put my soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death on a postcard with a basket full of bunnies and kittens and flowers and sunrises. It's not marketable. But we need to go to Gethsemane because those dark places are often what God uses to make us strong. What does Jesus say? Watch and pray. We're called to watch him too here. Watch what? All the pressure, the squeezing, the anxiety, the loneliness, the isolation, the loss, the unanswered prayer even that Christ faces. If we'll watch him in the garden, we see how he handles it. And that's how we learn to handle it. He doesn't run away from it, the temptation that is. He doesn't fall prey to it. He prays, he submits to the Father, he drinks the cup, he trusts the Father ultimately. He winds that watch up. He begins with, Father, if there be any way out of this, let me out. He ends with, nevertheless, your will be done. See, he's ordering his soul in his fiercest temptation. And watching him endure will teach us how to endure as well. The Scottish hymn writer, James Montgomery, wrote a hymn called Go to Dark Gethsemane. It's not popularly sung these days, but the lyrics, the text, is absolutely brilliant. And this is what he says. Go to dark Gethsemane, you who feel the tempter's power. Your Redeemer's conflict see. Watch with him one bitter hour. Turn not from his griefs away. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. Follow to the judgment hall. View the Lord of life arraigned. 
Oh, the wormwood and the gall. Oh, the pangs his soul sustained. Shun not suffering, shame, or loss. Learn of Christ to bear the cross. Calvary's mournful mountain climb, there adoring at his feet. Mark the miracle of time, God's own sacrifice complete. It is finished. Hear the cry. Learn of Jesus Christ to die. You see what he's saying? Watch Jesus. Learn how to pray. Learn how to bear the cross. Learn how to suffer. Learn how to die. But there's more than that because there's two gardens in Jesus' story, not just the Garden of Gethsemane where he faces his great trial. There's also the Garden of Resurrection, the Garden of the Empty Tomb. In Montgomery's hymn, he says we go to Gethsemane to learn to suffer and die, but his last stanza, brilliant, brilliant stanza, he says, Early hasten to the tomb where they laid his breathless clay. All is solitude and gloom. Who has taken him away? Christ is risen. He meets our eyes. Savior, teach us so to rise. Prayer takes attention. What does prayer make? It makes people, not people who don't suffer, not people who aren't anxious, not people who don't experience loss. We, you know, Christ suffered all of the temptations that we face, which means we're going to suffer temptations. But prayer makes people who face temptations people who learn how to rise. It makes them into people who believe in the resurrection from the dead. Seems like I reference this all the time, but I don't know why. One of the most heartbreaking experiences reading I ever had was reading Joan Didion's, the secular author, her memoir. She was raised in the Episcopal Church, but basically secular. And she, she tragically and suddenly lost both her husband and her daughter within months of each other. And it was called, the book's called The Year of Magical Thinking because she said it was magical thinking for a year. She was in, lost in Walmart. And, but she says she remembers, I think it was at her daughter's funeral, they recited the words of the Apostles' Creed and when she got to the line, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, she said, I realized I didn't believe it. And I thought that was absolutely crushing. Do you realize the power? Every Sunday we celebrate it. The resurrection from the dead. There's no gospel song that says there ain't no grave can hold my body down. You learn this through prayer. You learn this with communion with God. You see Jesus in the scriptures. You see him suffering. You see him rising. And you believe, you order your soul to believe, I will suffer and rise just as he did. If he rose from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. Look what happened to Peter. Peter fell apart. He slept through the garden, right? And he falls apart. He denies Christ three times. I refer, every time I, uh, I read this, I think, if I denied Christ three times tonight, I would be going before a presbytery trial, not standing before Jesus simply saying, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. That's all he asked him. Do you love me? And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're going to go to a place that you don't want to go when you're older, and you're going to stretch out your arms and be brought there by people whose hands you don't want to be in. He was foretelling Peter... I died on a cross, you're going to die on a cross. And of course, Peter says, what about that guy? He starts talking about John, but you know what happened? If You know the end of the story, tradition tells us, it's not in the scripture. Peter was crucified. See, eventually Peter did learn to rise. 
He, he said, I will go with Christ. In his life, he said, I'll go with you to the death. And then he falls apart. But after he saw the resurrection of Christ, he actually did go with Christ to death. If Christ rose from the dead, he can turn temptation into triumph. He can turn a cross into a crown. He can turn any situation into a happy ending. And you know, he's going to. We, we know this. We know the end of the story. No matter what we face on this life, we get a happy ending. And see, you preach that to yourself. You pray that over and over again. And you learn to rise. And that's the kind of person Jesus wants to make you through prayer. A person who learns to rise. I'll end with this. I preached a sermon a number of years ago called Go to Dark Gethsemane, where I referenced this hymn. And I said exactly in that sermon, part, it's not the same sermon, but I said this. We need to be people who learn how to rise. We are resurrection people. We're not just cross people. We're empty tomb people. And I had a sweet little lady who I love dearly named Patsy um, come to me after the sermon with tears in her eyes. And she just stared at me for a minute. And I'll just give you a little clue about what it's like as a preacher when you're interacting with the people. When someone just stares at you for a few awkward moments of silence, that's the worst. Because you're thinking, oh boy, what's coming? What do I have to prepare for? But she just looked at me with tears in her eyes for a minute. And then she hugged me really hard. And then she backed up, put her hands on my shoulders, and said, I need to learn how to rise. I need to learn how to rise. She had just lost her husband two weeks before that. And she's saying, I need to learn how to rise. If you leave with anything... Tonight, that's what I want it to be. Prayer is meant. We, give, we pay attention. We make the sacrifice of attention so that Christ can teach us how to rise. Let us pray. Father, we sang earlier, sweet hour of prayer. But to imagine an hour of prayer, the amount of attention that that would take. It seems impossible. And Lord, we're thankful that you accept our smallest offerings. When we, when we say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us sinners, you hear us and you grant that prayer. But I do pray uh, for our church and for us as individuals that you would cause us to be people who are dominated by the spirit of prayer. I know when one of your prophets, you promised to pour out upon the house of Israel a spirit of prayer and supplication. And that means that, Father, when you want to accomplish things in our lives, I think that you just you bend our hearts toward prayer. You give us an extra emphasis on prayer. That's my request tonight, that you would do that for each of us in this room, that you would give us hearts the desire to seek your face. And we've been given the Psalms as a tool to guide us. And so we have our starting point. Help us to commit to it. And Lord, as we do so, would you mold us and make us after your will? Would you turn us into people who no matter what catastrophic situations we might face, we have learned from Jesus Christ to rise. And so we can exchange our ashes for your beauty, our mourning for your dancing, our finiteness for eternal life. Help us to see prayer as one of the best gifts, not a burden, 
but a gift that you've given to us, that we might be much about that business. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 402. Abide with me, 402. Now the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
Amen.